My guest today is Dr. Thomas Fellows, who is postdoctoral fellow with the Geocoastal Research Group and the Marine Studies Institute at the University of Sydney. He's working on a project in collaboration with Geoscience Australia, exploring the vulnerability of coral reef islands to the threats such as sea level rise, ocean acidification, and increasing storminess. Welcome, Tommy. Thank you, pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with your 2018 paper, Patterns of Island Change and Persistence Offer Alternate Adaptation Pathways for Atoll Nations. Uh, you say sea level rise and climatic change threaten the existence of atoll nations. Inundation and erosion are expected to render islands uninhabitable for the next century, forcing human migration. You say here we present analysis of shoreline changes in all 101 islands in the Pacific Atoll Nation of Tuvalu. Is Tuvalu the right pronunciation? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll just preface the. Uh, so I didn't actually. I wasn't an author on this paper, but I found it like a really sort of seminal work in the field of uh, coral island sort of morphodynamics. Yeah. Yeah. So so what do you find in this paper? Uh, first of all, so Tuvalu is a Pacific Atoll nation, you say 101 islands. Yes. Um, and so what's the, just um, peripherally, what's the population of Tuvalu, do you know? Oh, um, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's it's in the order of thousands. It's, it's not oh, too many, okay. yeah. <laughs> um, but Tuvalu's been uh, sort of in the forefront recently. If you think back to COP26 in Glasgow last year, and... Um, Obviously, a lot of the Pacific Island nations, they came together and made big statements to try and curb emissions and things like that. And there was that really powerful uh, video you may or may not have seen where the foreign minister for Tuvalu was standing in the water to give his address um, to really highlight the fact that, you know, sea level rise is happening and it's happening right now in sort of in our area, in their area. Um, and I thought that was really powerful. But yeah, going back to Tuvalu and other nations like French Polynesia and, and um, the Maldives and other places around the world, that a lot of these islands are very low. We know that there's sort of only a couple of metres above the sea level. Um, and we know that sea levels are rising, so that's that's going to be an issue for those, those nations. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, very precarious, right? So uh, for these atolls, um, what is sort of the, the highest point from sea level for these this is a low-lying islands, right? Very low-lying yeah. islands, yeah. So the, so the islands we're sort of talking about aren't your sort of volcanic islands, which might have like, think of your Hawaii and things like that, where you have sort of hard structure in the middle. These are islands that are made up entirely of reef-derived carbonate sediments. So that's effectively shells and skeletons of corals and other little critters that live there that are sort of die and then they're, they're, they accumulate in... in um, conglomerates and turn into islands. So in answering your question about the elevation, they're only within a few metres of sea level because obviously they need the waves uh, and storms and things like that to transport these sediments. So um, there is some sort of regional differences. So think of sea level rises changed in the past. There's also been historical high stands where in some areas of the Southwest Pacific, um, sea level was higher than it currently is now and then had sort of 
in the last sort of 10,000 years, it got up a bit higher and then it's dropped down again. So in those cases, you might find islands above sort of five or six to 10 metres sort of thing. But generally, they're within that sort of three to five metre above sea level. Three to five metres. So, uh, I mean, this is, uh, I didn't like, I didn't see the video that you mentioned. Uh, this is truly a, a tactical problem for the people yes. who live there, right? It, it is, they could be wiped out completely in a matter of a couple of decades, perhaps. Even. Absolutely. So a lot of the sort of island persistence research is kind of divided into the those that think that islands will survive because they've survived in the past with sea level change and things like that. And then there's the ones that think that potentially they will get sort of destabilised or destroyed by rising sea and various other climate impacts. Um, What's a very interesting thing to consider is that if you have an inhabited island, for instance, like some of these Pacific nations, um, the sea level in those sea level rise in those areas is actually a lot higher than the global average. Mm. So the global average is about three and a half, three and three quarter mils per year, but it can be up to sort of five and five plus mils a year in some of these places. Now you know a meter of sea level rise by the end of the year isn't going to completely um, overtake these sort of islands at about three meters. But what's important is that if you have a population living on an island, they're sort of dependent on any sort of fresh water that might be within a lens, within the island themselves. And what we're seeing is that, you know, even with a small change in sea level, you're getting waves and storms that now have an ability to be able to wash over the islands. Mm. So it might not be removing the island entirely, but it's actually causing saltwater intrusion. So if we think that an island might survive to the end of the year, like its physical form may survive to the end of the year, the actual inhabitability is going to be much less. So in a couple of decades, all the fresh water might no longer exist. So then is that island inhabitable? And then obviously there's a lot of economic and very social um, issues related with that. Um, there has been some, and I think one of the papers I sent you by a group of scientists from the USGS led by Stellazzi, and they've actually done some really interesting work showing that between sort of 2030 and 2050, a lot of these islands will be uninhabitable, and that's going to cause significant geopolitical influence as well, because where are these people going to go? They don't have refugia to go to. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So where will they go? What would be sort of the most logical, closest point for them to escape, so to speak? Yeah, it's... Um, it's a difficult question to, to ask because all of the communities that live there are very different. They have very different cultural or religious um, uh, aspects to their lives. So maybe they can go to other like-minded areas or, or maybe there are political uh, agreements with countries around there sort of thing. Um, some of the other islands in the Pacific do have these volcanic islands. Think of um, Fiji, for instance, has a lot of volcanic islands as well as coral islands. So they're going to have places to go to. So it's very location and nation specific, but it's quite scary um, to think that entire cultures that have been there for thousands of years could potentially be lost and nationhoods could be lost in a matter of decades. Are they also affected by typhoons? Do typhoons come through there? Uh, yes. So. Um, Sort of cyclones or typhoons so, uh, or hurricanes, they're known in the, in the northern hemisphere. They 
so the closer you get to the equator, there's sort of a band where they don't really happen. And then as you get sort of into the more sort of tropical areas away from the equator, there's a lot of storm activity. And it really depends on what location you are in the, in the Pacific. It depends on how many storms there are. But it's interesting that you mentioned storms because at a sort of fundamental level, if we think of a coral reef, an atoll, so to say, like a ring atoll with its islands on there, um, what really interests me is sort of the physical processes, so how waves interact with reefs themselves. And what we know is if I uh, famous surf breaks in various places around the world is that reefs are very good uh, wave dissipators. And how that relates back to storms is that obviously storms have bigger waves, bigger winds and all these kind of conditions. Um, and what we can see is that even in these sort of stormy conditions, a reef will still dissipate a lot of that energy. So relating that back to an island, it means that an island in its current state will be quite protected by the reef around it. But if we then super elevate water above the current reef sort of level, we find that the dissipation rate lowers. So if sea level is going to go up, are we going to find that storms are going to have a greater influence on islands in back reef environments? Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is seen, like there's a paper I gave you um, which focuses on the island. Actually, you can see in the background of my picture, that's One Tree Island in the Southern Great Barrier Reef. Um, and the study that we looked at, which I was a co-author on, we looked at uh, the island shape from about the 1960s onward. And we found that the shape of the island hasn't really changed, except when we've had cyclones go over it. So these islands can be quite stable, but they can also be unstable in sort of ex in extraordinary um circumstances yeah yeah so that's sort of a general phenomenon i would think right so as sea sea levels rise uh, much of the energy dissipation mechanisms that that were in place are going to be lowered so it's not just for the atolls but generally for any island nation i would imagine any any storm related effects are going to be magnified as we go forward right Yes, totally. And this doesn't only relate to coral islands, but think of reef-lined coasts, I don't know, somewhere in the Caribbean or um, even places like Hawaii where they have these fringing reefs, for instance. The, the risk of coastal hazards from storms and waves is going to go up in the future. But one thing to really sort of focus on is a lot of these predictions um, assume that the reefs themselves won't change. Um, and we know that we've seen that there's been mass coral bleaching events, and we know that the ocean chemistry, pH and temperature is changing um, around the world. And all these kinds of um, abiotic factors influence the, the actual reef themselves and their ability to grow new carbonate. So, yeah. Um, if, if the reef is able to keep up with sea level rise, then of course, then the risk of any hazard goes down. But this is really where the forefront of the research in, in islands and, and reefs themselves is at the moment is, do we think that reefs are going to be able to survive these compounding impacts from climate change to be able to match the new conditions? Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, there's a lot of nonlinear effects there, right? So in some sense, you could have runaway train effects. You know, the, the storms get more intense, that's going to affect the reefs, reefs cannot yeah. grow back, storms get even more intense and so on and yeah. so forth. And so, so those predictions based on status quo measurements 
probably are not going to hold. Uh, there's, there could be a lot of uncertainty around that. Yeah, and and especially when it comes to islands, like the whole debate and the elephant in the room is that no one is really, or not a lot of people aren't mentioning sediment um, budgets and sediment production. Um, and where my research kind of fits in is that I, I look at coral islands from a sort of multidisciplinary perspective, and that takes on sort of the biological aspects of the organisms that are creating skeletal material and also the waves that can transport it. So in a sort of future scenario where we have a healthy reef that continues to create um, carbonate and sediment and things like this in a world where there is sea level rise, then the islands will potentially, looking at historical records, will be fine and will be maintained. They will just readjust to the changes, sea level might go up and things like that. But if we look at what sort of a worst case scenario where we have sea level rise increasing, uh, ocean acidification um, temperatures and bleaching and things like this, this sort of worst case scenario, that's when you get this sort of degraded reef which is unable to produce enough sediment to be able to maintain an island. So then you might have an island that then becomes destabilised or completely destroyed. So the debate at the moment is like, how do we quantify the sediment budget, carbonate production? We know we can do that. The biologists have been doing that for a long time. They know how things grow. Um, but actually putting that into practice and identifying sort of how much of that sediment is reaching islands is still a big unknown. And in a lot of locations, we have no idea what kind of sediments actually make up an island. And that can also dictate um, the stability and uh the morphology of an island, its shape, what's it, is it made of rubble, is it made of sand and things like this. Mm -hmm. um, and in my master's many years ago, I, I worked on this island in the, in the background I'm, I'm looking, you can see at the moment. And what we did was we went out and we collected sediments from all through these sediment sort of features that you can see, hang on, where are we? Sort of in that middle, because that light area. And we looked at the sediments and we identified what was in the sediments. And we found that there, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but there's an organism called large benthic formanifera. And they're these sort of star-shaped single-cell hard organisms. And we found that they make up about 30% of the sediments at One Tree Island. Um, and why we care about those is that they are very sensitive to changes in ocean chemistry and temperature. And they're sort of considered first responders to change. Mm. So what happens if we lose uh, a calcifier like that that produces, you know, 30, 20, I don't know, 50% of the sediment? How is that going to affect the reef sediment budget in the future mm. and islands as well? Right. So that's yeah, the that. connection between biology um, yeah. and um and geography, so to speak. Uh, I want to touch on another paper. I, I don't know uh, if this is yours or sustained oral reef growth in the critical wave dissipation zone of the Maldivian Atoll. Uh, yeah. Sea level rise is expected to outpace the capacity of coral reefs. We talked a bit about that to grow and maintain their wave protection function, yeah. exasperating coastal flooding and erosion of adjacent shorelines and threatening coastal communities. Um, you know, I, I grew up in South India and uh, Maldives is, you know, something that I know <laughs> where, where it is. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's, a, that's an interesting place, isn't it? I mean, a lot of changes there. Yes. So I, I haven't actually been lucky enough to go to the Maldives myself, but the paper that you referred to is um, from a, a group of seminal workers that work around, who've done a lot of work in the Pacific as well. Um, and they released this paper recently and they kind of, they 
sort of pioneered this new technique to be able to measure millimeter increments in accretion of the reef itself, which is really kind of cool. And, and um, it'd be nice to try and replicate that elsewhere. But they found that, you know, certain types and areas and zones along the sort of cross-shore profile from the offshore onto the onshore has been able to grow with sea level rise, which is really positive because, you know, the, the narrative of coral reefs is quite negative a lot of the time. Um, but one thing to consider is that coral reefs have gone through this flux in sea level rise through the geological time. Um, there's been sort of five mass extinctions in the last few million years and things like this. So they are quite resilient. It's just sort of the changes that are occurring in the climate now are happening so rapidly. And that's the real concern. So um, but going back to your question about, about the Maldives, there's another paper that came out recently um, looking at the change in island areas um, throughout the sort of Indian Ocean and the Pacific and the South China Sea. And they found that around 6% of change since the year 2000 has been because of anthropogenic changes to the sizes of islands. Um, and obviously that's a very politically hot topic, but um, which we won't go into now. But the in the Maldives, for instance, you might know better than me, but there's limited space. So the reefs have really been sort of reclaimed to create more space for uh, Malay and other places like that on the islands, yeah. Yeah, a lot of development going on there. Yeah. A um, lot of resort type construction and so on and so forth. Okay. So, <laughs> um, and that also interacts with uh, this this sort of larger problem. Uh, there's another paper that you're looking at global scale changes in the area of atoll islands during the 21st century. Yes. So the large data here, long-term persistence of atoll islands is under threat due to continued sea level rise driven by anthropogenic uh, climate change. Uh, you say one widely discussed potential impact of sea level rise is the widespread chronic erosion of atoll islands. You talked about that. Yeah. Despite these concerns, um, you say there haven't been sort of a, a global study um, that looks at a large number of islands. So. This one is looking at a land area of 221 atolls mm. uh, in the Pacific, uh, Indian and Pacific Oceans. Yes. So what do we find here? So um, there's been sort of around 20 papers over the last sort of 20 years or so that have been using sort of aerial imagery and satellite imagery and nautical maps and all this kind of stuff to sort of map decadal changes in, in island areas. And um, when a lot of this research came out sort of in the last 10 years, what was really surprising is that about 85% of coral islands are not shrinking. They're actually either stable or getting bigger. And that was quite um, surprising to a lot of the uh, Pacific Island countries that are saying, hey, well, actually, the island that I live on is changing quite a lot. And it's, it's really important to note that even though a lot of islands are getting smaller, they, their shapes and their locations are changing. So you might have erosion in some spots and growth of or accretion in other spots. And that's sort of um, something that really needs to be explored more is that even if they're not shrinking, they're still changing, they're still evolving. And, and you have to think of an island as something that's not a static feature. It's going to evolve based on waves and sea level rise and storms and other sort of aspects like that. Um, but so some of the work that I'm working on now uh, in tandem with Geoscience Australia is trying to look at sort of uh, island change or island risk to climate change. 
so what I'm doing is that I'm trying to look at it in a sort of holistic way and and um, measure various morphometrics of different islands, so maximum elevation, their area, if they have vegetation or not, and this kind of thing. is about a, a suite of different things I'm measuring. And then I'm also overlaying um, various climate indices, so looking at heat, marine wa heat waves and pH and storms and things like this. And the idea is that there, as you said before, there are so many moving parts to this narrative. You know, every island is going to be exposed to a different sort of threat or level of threat potentially. Um, so coming up with sort of a, a way of categorizing their vulnerability is quite a difficult thing because islands in themselves can be so diverse in their form and function. Um, so the work I'm working on at the moment is looking at coral islands in the Coral Sea, which for those who don't know is east of the Great Barrier Reef out in the uh, sort of Southwest Pacific Ocean between sort of New Caledonia and Papua New Guinea. And there's a big area of, of coral reefs that are uh, part of the Australian maritime jurisdiction. And um, what's really interesting is that there's an aspect of le a legal aspect that we're also looking at in the project that I'm working at. Um, so just at a high level under international law, a lot of these sort of atolls and coral islands are used as um, legal baselines or territory for a country to draw its maritime jurisdictions. So in the, in the 80s, the, everyone at the UN got together, or most people at the UN got together and came up with the law of the sea. And basically, if you had an, uh, an island that you had a population on, um, sitting on a reef somewhere in the world, and you claim that island, you can then draw a 200 nautical mile exclusion zone around that island. So um, obviously a lot of the islands in the Pacific do this for their fishing rights and, and, and other things. Um, but from an Australian perspective, a lot of the islands in the Coral Sea have a huge amount of exclusive zone around them because of this. So basically the research that I'm doing is trying to identify if we can pick out individual islands that are potentially more vulnerable to climate change and thus relates to a vulnerable baseline. So if you lose an island, do you lose that jurisdiction? How is that going to play out um, from a scientific point of view, but also an economic or a social or even political point of view as well? So it's kind of this intersection with all these different <laughs> um, uh, disciplines and perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a cost to losing an island. It's not just economic cost, uh, it's a political cost <laughs> in some Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, if you if you take some of the islands in the Pacific, they've actually gone one step further legally and they've got treaties between neighbouring nations to delineate the lines between their territories. Um, but what's really becoming apparent is that the legal framework still needs a little bit of work when it comes to dealing with what happens if an island moves or is lost or the reef itself changes in some way and then the definition of the baseline or the jurisdiction around it can no longer be applied to that location. What happens then? Do we have a retreat of the uh, jurisdiction? Do we lose total claim over that area? And then does that mean that, yeah, so there's a lot of sort of argument on do we make these boundaries based on today's locations so that they're future proof and things like that. So it's, it's quite an interesting space, yeah. You know, as, as you were saying before, even if the surface area remained the same, um, the islands are moving in some way. So it, it yeah. loses some area, but it uh, recaptures some new area. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the islands uh, surface area may be approximately the same, let's say, 
but it's yeah. at, at, at a different location now, right? Yeah. And that creates a bunch of complications out of it. Absolutely. So if, if you were living on one of these islands near the beach or on the coast and suddenly the <laughs> island starts migrating at half a metre a, a year or something, suddenly you're going to be trying to armour your coastline or you're going to have to retreat. And, and it's that whole idea of with any kind of coastal um, protection, is it, are you going to accept the change are you going to retreat away from the uh, from the risk or are you going to try and armor the coastline so those are your sort of three options um and yeah so i, I must just to go back to the sort of legal side of it uh one sort of clause that is only for coral islands is that um under the law they it assumes that the reef and the island are one one system one everything so if there's an island on a reef, the actual baseline is the outer line of the reef. So if the island moves around on the reef, the line is still the outer line of the atoll or whatever feature we're looking at, which is quite interesting. Um, and it's considered the low water line. So a lot of these reef environments at low tide are almost sort of almost out of the water. Um, and you can actually walk around on these uh, sort of reef structures. It's really beautiful. Um, but again, if sea level rises, then it's no technically no longer the low water line. What happens to the baseline? It's just, it's a bit of a headache uh, for those who work in these spaces. But yeah. Yeah. So, so I want to go into another topic. Uh, you you mentioned sure. that um, patterns of sediment transport uh, yeah. using for manifera tracers across sand aprons on the Grand Barrier Reef. So th these are, as you mentioned, organisms. Yeah, um, that does something to the to the barrier reef. So they are actually responsible for the sediment uh, transport. Okay. Um, so so the paper you're alluding to was uh, my 2017 paper on, um, and and basically what we did was is so the formanifera are these sort of single cell photosynthetic uh, photosynthetic organisms, and they they grow and live in what we call turfing algae which is sort of matted sort of algal habitat that is between the reef crest on the edge of the reef and whatever sort of internal sandy areas you might have. Um, and they have quite a quick growth. They live for a couple of months or a year and things like that. And then they die and then they sort of, the shells or the skeletons are then deposited and then transported by waves. So what uh, the research group I was working with uh, came up with an idea of if we took sediment samples, we know, okay, sorry, we know where they live and we know where their skeletons are deposited. So we can go, okay, point A to point B. Um, and basically we found that as we took sediment samples in the sort of back reef environments where their skeletons are deposited, we found that the shells that, the skeletons, sorry, were becoming more and more degraded and abraded and um, sort of disintegrated the further away from the living habitat. So we decided, all right, how can we potentially assess the abradedness of the shells in the sediments in three in two dimensions to infer a direction of transport? So we know that for it for a shell to get from point A to point B, it's going to have to be sort of rolled around in the sand and all its little appendages will get broken off and, and worn away. And what we were able to do is look at their abrasion and we came up with an index from sort of a rating of least abraded to most abraded and we found that there were sort of spatial patterns in the abrasion and then we also cored down through sediments and found the same 
spatial patterns. And what that meant was that we looked at modern wave direction and currents and all this kind of stuff, and we found that they were they actually lined up perfectly with the direction of the abrasion, if that makes sense. Mm. So we were able to sort of look at the direction or patterns of sediment transport in the geological record, which was really interesting. Um, and there's been other work that has also looked at similar things and how they sort of reach islands and the contribution to island sediments that these little critters do sort of add. Yeah. So, so it gives us an indication of um, how, how they're being transported and how mm. sediments are being transported. Uh, you yeah. have a, a recent paper, a sediment supply dampens the erosion effects of sea level rise on reef islands. Um, and you say large uncertainty surrounds the future physical stability mm. of underlying coral reef islands due to a limited understanding of the geomorphic response of islands to changing environmental conditions. Um, so it's a physical and numerical modeling efforts have improved understanding of the of the modes and styles of island change in response to increasing wave and water level mm. conditions. However, the impact of sediment supply on island morphodynamics has not been addressed and remains poorly understood. Mm. So th this is sort of um, computational fluid dynamics <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and looking at how the presence or absence of sediments in certain part of that system, how it might affect the, the whole dynamics, I would think, right? Absolutely. So that so that work was um, a University of Auckland and Plymouth uh, study, um, and what they did was they kind of came up with these different scenarios of sea level rise and sediment um, supplies, and then they used sort of physical and numerical modelling to uh, see what would happen when they increase sea level and stuff like this. And uh, so, as I alluded to earlier, there is this sort of connect between the biological components of a reef and the physicality of sort of the islands through sediment supply and transport. So all the islands that we see today are quite young when we look at them geologically. They're probably less than 5,000 years old, mm. and that's because sea level rose to its sort of current or near its current position about 6,000 years ago in the Holocene. And then from that sort of reefs would have grown up to match that. And then once there was no more vertical accretion space, they would start growing laterally and then produce and sediment will be produced as waves break off the little bits of coral and other sort of things and then that would be transported to create islands so we know that how islands had formed in the past so that can tell us something about what islands will happen in the future so going back to this paper they looked at a sort of sediment rich uh, scenario where reefs are very productive and there's more sediment more sediment more sediment and you found that islands would actually grow laterally and vertically with any increase in sea level rise but sort of like a sliding scale. If you go to the other end of the scale where you have no sediment being supplied by a healthy reef, then the island itself may be overtopped or destroyed or um, flattened by wave overtopping and inundation and things like that. So there's not been much work done on it, but this was a very important uh, work because they physically modeled it as well and found that it actually happened. Um, but identifying the sediment potential supply at various locations is still a huge gap mm. in the research because the biological makeup of a reef can be so different between here and one next door you know so it, it's quite a difficult thing to to comprehend but there is a lot of work in this in this space people are doing um, carbonate 
production calculations using sort of community and individual corals and things like that. Um, and some corals are obviously more uh, sorry, uh, resilient to changes in the environment than others. Some grow fast, some don't. So it, it, it's a it's a very complicated uh, question to try and answer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, without knowing a lot about this, Tommy, you know, um, what it feels to me is that these systems are very, very fragile, right? There's so many nonlinear effects, both from biology and from geology, that is, you know, sort of interacting to make the systems either stable or unstable. They're very fragile. And so looking forward, it's sort of um, scary <laughs> to think about yeah, even changing some conditions in close proximity, even though in itself doesn't look like a big change, could have a lot of unknown and unpredictable end outcomes for this islands, right? Um, yeah, no, I agree with that statement. I, would, I wouldn't say that our reefs are fragile in the sense they're like, they're going to completely collapse because they are quite robust in that they can uh, they can evolve or uh, adapt to changes in environment. What's happening is that the changes in sea surface temperature and acidity and all these kinds of things are happening so quickly, yeah. and that's what's the sort of is causing greater risk or vulnerability. Um, but if we were to compound various effects, uh, so climate effects, if you put for instance, uh, in 2016, there was that huge mass bleaching in the Great Barrier Reef, and it really impacted the top end of the Great Barrier Reef. But the southern end was kind of more uh, spared of the heating that had caused all that bleaching. And there were some cyclones that happened at the same time, which meant it brought up different weather patterns and colder water. So it was kind of all these different threats happening at the same time, some constructive effects, some destructive effects. And... Um, so what is the, what's the yeah. cause of the bleaching? Uh, is it acidification or, or something else? Um, so bleaching in corals is when they, so a coral itself is an animal, like a colony of, of, of animals. And uh, in their sort of surface tissue, they have this colorful photosynthetic algae. And obviously it's a symbiosis where one gives shelter and food and, and, and back, back and forward. And what happens is, is that if a, a coral gets stressed, could be through, um, pollution, temperature, warming. It could be through acidification or other kind of uh, stress responses. It, what it does is it will expel the colourful photosynthetic algae, the zooxanthellae, um, and then that leaves that sort of white remaining coral structure. Now, if a, if a threat or a, a stressor is short-lived, a lot of the corals can recoup the, the algae and live a healthy life. But what we're seeing with marine heat waves, for example, is a marine heat wave is uh, defined as sea surface temperatures above the summertime average. Um, so if we have heating of sort of four weeks above average or eight weeks, we find that corals will bleach and then they can actually die if that heating is prolonged for long enough. And what we're finding is that with each sort of mass bleaching event, which is generally caused by heating, um, that they're getting longer and longer, these events. So we're finding that they're kind of getting hit every year or every couple of years with these massive heating events, these big die-offs of coral, um, and, and that's definitely a concern. Mm. And it, it's important to note that even though, you know, there's coral reefs in the south 
Pacific or in the Indian Ocean, in the South China Sea, even in Japan and the Caribbean, there really needs to be sort of a global um, effort to limit emissions that are causing these heat, the heating and the changes in chemistry and the water and storms are changing and things like that. And that's that's a huge challenge for the survival of coral reefs is that you can pour millions and billions of dollars in to manage your coral reefs but if you're not changing the fundamental drivers of the change in climate it's kind of yeah you've got to it's going to be tough to keep that at bay so so what's the cause of this um, heat shocks so to speak is it is it just um, sort of the climate or is it the water changing direction? What, what, what is causing the, the heat shock? So I, I can talk about sort of the Great Barrier Reef because I, I kind of, I know a bit more about that. So it's to do with like sort of Pacific scale weather and various other factors. So you have the El Nino Southern Oscillation, which is that sort of warm water plume that will move from sort of South America across the Pacific and it goes back and forth. And it obviously affects the weather patterns on either side of the Pacific. Um, but what it can do is it can bring a lot of hot water into sort of the north part of Queensland, Papua New Guinea, and that sort of area around all those islands. And what happens is that the warm water then starts travelling down the East Australian coast. And what we're finding is that these events are becoming more intense. These weather systems are getting stronger and stronger, and it's causing more and more hot water to arrive. Um, and that then stresses out the corals, causes the bleaching, and then you can have sort of community die-offs and mass mortality events. Um, and an interesting thing to link that back to islands is that if you have a big mortality event or a bleaching event on a reef, uh, that produces a lot of carbonate, a lot of dead skeletons and shells. So what happens is that you could then have waves then breaking off all this sort of dead sediment and rocks and rubble and all this kind of stuff and then transporting that to islands. So there was a study in the Japan um, after the 1998 bleaching event that found that within the year after that event, a lot of the rubble islands in the area doubled in size. Mm. But the sort of kicker to that was that it was very short-lived and a lot of the additional rubble and sediment that had arrived sort of was transported away and they went back to pre bleaching island sizes, which is, you know, that short-term positive might not outweigh sort of uh, repeated uh, reef bleaching events, yeah. Yeah, you, you have another paper here um, about morphodynamic controls for growth and evolution of the rubble coral island. Mm. Uh, rubble islands are, you say, dynamic sedimentary features present on reef yeah. platforms that evolve under a variety of uh, morphodynamic processes and controlling mechanisms. Um, you say they provide valuable inhabitable um, land for small island nations, critical habitat, habitat for numerous species, and are threatened by climate change. Um, so if these things are forming sort of dynamically, are they stable? Will they be stable? I mean, are they really inhabitable? So that's a really good question. So. Um, sort of going back to how an, a coral island can form. So there's a couple of different theories. So if you have an island that's made up of sand, 
um, sand is obviously quite small and can be transported by sort of normal wave energy and currents and things like that. So if you have a, an ample supply of sediment and good conditions, you might find that the sediment accumulates and forms a sand island. Now, it's a little bit different um, for rubble islands because rubble is obviously bigger, it weighs more and it requires more energy to, to be transported. So there's a theory to say that rubble islands, like the one you can see in the background of my picture, are actually formed by more sort of episodic events, so big storm events and things like this, because they require more energy to move the sediments. So, um, for instance, this, this island in the background, One Tree Island, we think that it's been formed by these sort of big cyclone events moving a lot of rubble that would have probably come from the outer reef into these areas. So going back to your idea of um, Will islands grow or uh, can we inhabit the islands? I think so, because if you've got a rubble island and it's not stormy all the time, it's not going to be, not much change is going to happen to that island. Um, not to say that you can't have an island that's made of both sand and rubble, so then you have sort of mixing of the processes that form islands. And a good example of that is an atoll island. So you find that these very narrow sort of ring-shaped reefs will have these very long islands forming on them. And you'll have sort of an idea that there's like a proto-island, which is where you might have an event that throws a lot of rubble on there, and that then there's a healthy reef supplying sand, and then you find that the island will grow on top of that, and then you get vegetation, and the island will grow towards the inner side of the reef, and then it'll grow to the outer side of the reef, and then there's sort of this idea that there's this perfect width of the reef compared to the island based on sort of hydrodynamics and the potentials and entrainment of sediment and transport and stuff. It's really interesting, but um, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm looking at this one tree island behind you. It looks like there are more than one tree there, Tommy. Uh, yes, so <laughs> in typical sort of 17th and 18th century naming conventions, um, when uh, people first went past, or so Europeaners first went past the islands, it looked like one tree was on the island, when in fact it was just the type of tree had this sort of big sort of continuous canopy and they thought it had one. Um, but yeah, that's just how, it, <laughs> that's how it's named, you know. There's a lot of islands in the Great Barrier Reef that are named after the day they spotted them, you know, very creative. <laughs> So, so in conclusion, Tommy, you, you talked um, you talked about the, the coral reefs um, and associated processes. They're not not necessarily fragile. They can evolve. They can change. If the change in the climatic processes are not shocks, uh, they, they are you know slowly sort of transforming. They would be fine. But what we have is really a shock episode, right? So the, the question is, you know, I, I was thinking all these environmental conferences, they should have these conferences uh, uh, on these islands because then, you know, all the politicians can actually see <laughs> what, what is happening. Uh, aren't we to a point that we really have to very seriously intervene uh, to, to reduce the shocks? Otherwise, we're going to lose a bunch of stuff. I think... Intervention is possibly going to have to happen in some locations where people live there. Um, as, as with any coastal area, if you're going to have a beach that's eroding on, on the continental coastline and there's infrastructure there, there's going to have to be something. But obviously we need to understand at what point um, at what point can we not no longer fend off the environment kind of thing. 
Um, and you talk about these sort of, and we talked about the episodic sort of uh, shocks. Um, and they're becoming sort of the time period for a reef to recover from a, a bleaching event is typically around 10 to 15 years. But now we're finding that bleaching events are happening every couple of years. Mm. So is there going to be a knock-on effect of that? Is there going to be some kind of dramatic shift in the biological communities to those that can deal with heating and stuff like that? And how is that going to affect the carbonate production to these islands themselves? I think there is going to have to be some flexible management strategies towards protecting some that might have significance for various social, environmental or economic reasons. Um, are we going to be able to protect all islands? Uh, I'm not quite sure. There's there's so many of them and they're so diverse and so far away from everywhere. Um, it's It's a really tough question to ask but I, I'm positive I am positive that islands will survive into the future in what form I can't really tell you yet but I think they will survive and there will be examples that can survive through climate change I think yeah I was just wondering so on these leaves this bleaching events you say the recovery period is 10 to 15 years and the frequency of bleaching every two years these are in layers right so so, so you have a bleaching event and you don't you don't recover those things are going to be broken off uh and then the next layer is going to be vulnerable to the next bleaching event right so you could you could have this happen uh systematically for a long time i think so but the good thing to consider is that obviously on a reef it's really the only thing that's living is sort of the layer on the top so if we kill off the layer at the top it then also can be positive you might uh, offer up a new niche or new area for new stuff to grow. It's just what's going to grow there is is still up for debate. Um, is it going to be dominated by algae instead of coral? And then if there's less carbonate because it's algae and, and then it's going to have a knock-on effect. But yeah, the whole sort of idea that we might actually de break the framework of a reef is also something that needs to be investigated for sure. And if storms are getting bigger and more powerful, they're going to have more energy to be able to break off bigger parts of reef. But in turn, on the flip side, is that going to produce more rubble for an island? So there's so many moving parts to consider. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I love it. It's great. Excellent. Yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating research, Tommy. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Well, it's been my pleasure. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you.